my main goal to see how much we can understand and apply to ourselves and how much ground we cover is incidental to that. Somebody says, well, if you wouldn't talk about it and just read it, you could get through it. That's true, but we wouldn't get as much impact as we do if it is expounded in the sense made of it. And indeed, that's what it said back in Nehemiah, that they didn't just read the law, but they made the sense of it, helped explain it, helped explain how it applied to their lives, and and how it applies to our lives is so very important, because I doubt if there are many, many people on the earth who understand that Deuteronomy is for today, that it means us. Uh, That would be a very rare individual. Most of them just throw the whole Old Testament out. Uh, Well, maybe they'll keep Psalms and Proverbs because they're sweet. But other than that, uh, they don't care about the rest of the Old Testament or much of the New Testament. But it is very, very important. So let's get to chapter 8. All the commandments which I command you this day shall you observe to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Eternal swore to your fathers. So there's a lot writing on doing what God says. A, you live, you multiply, your families prosper, and you get to live in the land. God has promised us the same thing, whether it be uh, a short time in the promised land here at the end of the age or eternally throughout the kingdom of God. Eternal security is now at stake. And you shall remember all the way which the eternal your God led you these forty years in the wilderness to humble you and to prove you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or no. Nothing has changed. God put them through a great deal of trial and testing, hardship, even as he has put the church through a great deal of trial, testing, and hardship and confusion here at the end (coughs) to try us and see who will and who will not obey God. That's what this is all about. How much we're going to suffer along with Babylon around us or Mitzrayim around us as they did in uh, that captivity, no one knows how much. But we've always said, that probably we would go through a certain amount of it just like they did before God made a difference and a separation. Let's not forget that, lest we begin to (coughs) get frustrated and say, well, why doesn't God make a difference? He will, but He needs to know where our hearts are. And trial and testing and difficulty is where He learns that. And are we not already, to a great degree, suffering the same diseases and difficulties that the people around us are, whether it be financial uh, strain, whether it be cancer, diabetes, and heart disease, and various other things that are on the horizon or already present among the American people in general? There are people here, quite a few, who have one of the big three and others with other maladies. And God has not, for the most part, made much of a difference. He's given us some intervention now and then. He's given us a healing now and then uh, for His purposes. But He's not doing it wholesale yet by any means. 
So we can get frustrated by that. But if we get frustrated and start grumbling and complaining, then we're what? We're right back to the Red Sea and the aftermath. We haven't gained a thing. So let's understand that pressure and heat and difficulty are what help God make the final decisions on whom he can and cannot use. <coughs> so, when will it get better? That's up to him. I'll tell you when he says it'll get better, when he knows that our heart has turned fully to him. He has to be assured of that, confident of that. And once he is positive, proof positive, that that's the way we are as a people and shall be, then things will change. I don't think there is a set time for God's gathering or when these end time things happen. We have probably a very few year window of opportunity. So once these things begin to happen, there are some that are stated as exact time periods, like the building of Jerusalem, like the Great Tribulation. But between now and then, there's an indeterminate amount of time. And it may be, to some degree, upon us, how soon God makes the difference and how much time we have left to do the work that has to be done, He'll make sure that there is sufficient time, or he'll raise up stones. But he's giving us all the time he can <clears throat> to see where we are, what's going on in our hearts and minds. So, otherwise, why would he say, don't give me any rest until it happens? Why would he say, I'll do it before the flesh fails before me? Why does he say, wait for me and look for me in Isaiah 8? He makes several statements like that, which seem to indicate that he can be beseeched, he can be talked to, he can be pleaded with, and that he has the capacity within his plan and purpose to shorten some of the trial that we have to go through. Why tell us to pray like that and not to give him any rest unless it could do some good? If it's all set by numbers exactly when it will happen, then all the prayers you could pray wouldn't make one whit of difference. But our change of attitude and our prevailing prayers can make a difference with God. He says the effectual righteous, the prayer, but the effectual prayer of a righteous man avails much. So if we were work, are working on becoming righteous as we should, and pray fervently, it will have an impact upon God in terms of how much we go through and how much He cuts that short and lets us get to work. We as humans would like to lay it all on him. You made these promises, why don't you keep them? No, he says, I made you these promises and I'll follow through with them if you will obey me. 
Let's go on. We'll see that said here in about two verses. <laughs> and you shall remember all the way which the eternal your God led you these forty years in the wilderness to humble you, prove you, I read this, and whether you would keep his commandments. And he, and he did humble you and suffered you to hunger and fed you with manna which you knew not. Neither did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth, or the eternal, does man live. It's his words, his commands, his way of life that is important. He can sustain our physical lives with manna. He's done it before. He could do it again, if need be. So we, what did Christ say? Seek you first the kingdom of God, and these other things will be added. Matthew 6.33. It's right there. And not to worry about these things. Yes, work to produce, but don't worry. He will take care of us if we obey Him. That was the lesson. They had to be humbled and realize they couldn't do it themselves. And living by his word was the most important thing, and then he just fed them. Food rained down from heaven. Your, your <clears throat> clothing waxed not old upon you, neither did your foot swell these forty years. That's pretty durable clothing. Forty years of wearing the same clothes, and it did not wear out. And they weren't under really good conditions. They didn't have washing machines. Uh, they didn't have bathrooms. They didn't have showers. And yet, their feet stayed healthy through 40 years of wandering and their clothes didn't get old. And they griped the whole time. You shall also consider in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the eternal your God chastens you. Hebrews 12, Paul quoted this and spent several verses explaining it. That God chastens every son whom he loves. Therefore shall you keep the commandments of the eternal your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. You won't be chastened if you do what your father says. Just as children will not be chastened if they do what their parents say. Now, for you as a parent to become like God, you need to be sure that your children have the right, willing, cooperative spirit and attitude and do follow through on what they're told to do with a good attitude. And if they don't, that is a failure as a parent. You are not parenting like God in that case. We are called upon to father, follow the Father and the Son and do as they do. So when we insist upon having a wrong attitude and not doing the things God has instructed us, if He loves us, He will chasten us. And he says, if you don't chasten your child when they need it, 
then he becomes a bastard and not a son. Pretty strong words. So we have an absolute responsibility to be, our, be sure our children have cooperative, positive attitudes. And if they do not, then we use whatever means are necessary to cause that to happen. And if you don't, it'll just get worse and worse and worse. <clears throat> Better to start when they're young and wait until they're older and then try to fix a disaster. Far more difficult. But it can still be done. For the eternal your God brings you into a good land. Now we spent some time on 7, 8, and 9 verses last feast. I won't spend a lot of time on it now, but just as a quick review, here is a description of the promised land. And we made a comparison in many ways between the Middle East and here, and we see that that over there absolutely cannot be the promised land. And there are no Israelites living there anyway. There are a bunch of Ashkenazi Jews and maybe a few true Jews. But Israel is not there. The biggest contingency of Israelites is in this country, combined with Canada, <coughs> and others in Northwest Europe and other places. All areas that are productive. But that down there is not productive. See if it fits this. For the eternal your God brings you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills. Lots and lots of water. They have virtually no water over there. And they're drilling into Syria, to, underneath Syria, the Syrian line, to try to get enough water. It won't support the several million people that Israel was when Moses said these words to them. As I said yesterday, what did they have to do in the desert but have children? And they had no problem keeping the children clothed or fed. Clothes didn't wear out, and manna was there every day, which is nutritious, it had everything it needed in it to keep them healthy. So they had plenty of food, plenty of clothes. God was a wall of fire and a protection over them so they didn't have to worry about the weather. All they had to do was have children. There's no telling how many that three, three and a half, four million that came out of Mitzrium had turned into by the time they were ready to go into the promised land. Could have been 10, 12, 15 million. Who knows? Easily. So there had to be enough water to take care of that many people. This land can do that. Great Lakes, Mississippi, Columbia, oh, on and on and on it goes. Even out west, with the Columbia and the Snake and the uh, Missouri River and the Rio Grande and on and on. Lots of water. A land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of oil and honey. Very, very productive. That over there is not. And what little irrigation water they get out of what they call the Jordan uh, doesn't do much. They import most, a majority, about 60% of everything they consume over there, they import. 
It is not a land, but is a good land that will support even the few that they have there today, by comparison. Won't do it. Got to bring stuff from somewhere else. A land wherein you shall eat bread without scarceness. Don't have to worry about it. Who's the breadbasket of the world? America. You shall not lack anything in it. So the promised land would be a land that would be self-sufficient. It would not need to import anything unless it wanted to. Therefore, it had to have the agricultural capacity, the mineral and production capacity, the fuel capacity to take care of people so that they would not lack anything. That does not describe Israel in the Middle East at all. It describes this country, which has everything it could possibly need, including the oil and all that stuff that we even are using in modern America. We don't have to bring it from the Middle East. We have plenty. <coughs> we have politics also. That's another issue. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you may dig brass. There are no iron deposits in Israel in the Middle East at all. There are no minerals there. No silver, no gold, no iron. There is one very small copper mine down on the Gulf of uh, Aqaba, the lot. And it doesn't produce much. That's the only mineral they have in the whole nation is one little copper mine. We have the world's biggest copper mine up here, Kennecott, and others in Nevada. Nevada's called the Silver State. Utah's full of silver and gold, and so is Colorado, and so is Alaska, and on and on it goes. Iron County, just here up here above us, has a mountain of iron that they're still mining and have hardly even begun to tap. Iron they could dig out of the hills right near Jerusalem. The Mesabi Range in Minnesota has produced most of the iron that has built the incredible infrastructure America has. That nation over there has absolutely none. Zilch. They have some phosphate and some uh, various things like that in the water of the Dead Sea. But no uh, materials, no gemstones. No silver, no gold, basically no nothing. Check it for yourself. Is that the promised land? Can't be. According to this description, there is no way on earth that it could be. Anyway, let's move on to verse 10. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the eternal your God for the good land which he has given you. So... You go in, you enjoy the abundance of the promised land, and then you thank and bless God who gave it to you. Or, conversely, you take him out of your schools, out of your churches, out of your government, out of your life, teach evolution, and make Christians the enemy. Which has it been? We murder our own. God told us that we would have children and not lose our children in childbirth if we would obey Him. So instead, we just decide to kill our children. 
before they're born, or in some cases even after they're born. Is it any wonder that God is about to destroy this nation? We are abominable before God. We need to get that through our thick skulls and withdraw ourselves from this world as much as we possibly can instead of sniffing along the edges of it. And beseech God that he make a difference. Verse 11, Beware that you forget not the eternal your God, and not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command you this day. So what have we done with the Ten Commandments? All of our religions say they're done away with. Don't forget the commandments, God says. Oh, they're done away. You don't have to keep those. We do diametrically the opposite of what God asks us to do. And remember, we read in chapter 31, this is written for the latter day. It's now. It's what we've done today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built goodly houses and dwelt therein, we have our McMansions, we've begun to dwell therein, they're all across the country. America has had a standard of living that no country, no empire in the history of mankind has ever achieved. Conveniences, trinkets, merchandise, food, you name it, we've had it. And when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied, we've had tremendous silver and gold mines in this country, and we multiplied it. And now we have, because of bad management and sin, gone into deep, deep debt in this country, and we're giving all the gold that we had away to foreign powers to keep them from coming in and taking over. You've read the national debt that falls on every man, woman, and child in America that the government has run up against us, and it is we are the ones held responsible for that debt. And what is it? 183? I don't know. A lot of money that Americans simply could not in any way, form, or fashion pay. So what are the foreign powers to do? They want paid. All we have is our land and our lives. They're going to come in and take the land and kill anyone who opposes, and then they're going to take the rest into slavery to work in the sweatshops and pay them less than they're paying the Chinese workers today. Just enough food and shelter to keep them alive so they can work. That is the fate of America. That will happen, I think, in far less than ten years from today. They're preparing to do it even as we speak. If you don't believe it, you need to keep up with what's going on in the world. <clears throat> doesn't have anything to do with God. doesn't have anything to do with anything but what we have done among the nations of the world, and they are about 
to wreak vengeance upon us. Whether or not you read it in the Bible, all you've got to do is get on the Internet and start reading, and you'll find out that's where we are. So, when your flocks and herds have multiplied, your gold and silver, all that you have is multiplied. That's been us. Then your heart be lifted up, and you forget the eternal your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Mitzrayim from the house of bondage. Same God today that there was then. He brought us out of slavery, brought us through Western Europe, brought us here just as he brought them out of Mitzrayim. That was another slavery that we had gone into under Nebuchadnezzar. And it took a long time for him to let us come back to this land that had been desolate for many generations, except for those who call themselves Native Americans. They are not Native Americans, I'm sorry. Ham was here before Abraham came. And after Abraham came, there was intermarriage, and that's where the American Indian came from. They were the mixed-race leftovers when Israel was taken back into captivity and stayed here. Israel went into captivity and ultimately, finally, came back as a permanent colony in 1607. Then we were multiplied, and we were blessed, and we built our fine big homes and had all these things that we have, and now they're going to be taken away, and we're going to abject slavery one more time. And you have the opportunity to avoid this. If you will turn to God with your whole heart, go through whatever amount of trial, testing, chastening we have yet ahead of us, change your spirit and attitude, change your attitude toward God and His law, and obey Him with your whole heart, He will protect you, man, woman, and child, from what is coming. The handwriting is on the wall. The process has started. And it won't be long until it is completed. Remember God, verse 15, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought you forth water out of the rock of Flint, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers knew not, that he might humble you, and that he might prove you to do you good at your latter end. We are at the ultimate latter end of Israel's experience on this earth. And if we will repent and obey, he will do us good here at the latter end. He's promised that. Now, we can fool around and goof around and wait, but God is giving us space to repent. Space to be accounted worthy, to be usable by God to finish His work. And if we will respond to that challenge, He will. <clears throat> Verse 17, And you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. 
Do Americans really give God credit now for what we have? No, not for the most part. God's out the window. But you shall remember the eternal your God, for it is He that gives you power to get wealth, that He may establish His covenant which He swore to your fathers as it is this day. And those who do obey and are faithful are going to have, I believe for many prophecies, the greatest wealth that exists on the face of the earth right here at the end time. The scriptures, the promises are all there. It is only for us to respond and we will receive that inheritance. Verse 19, And it shall be, if you do at all forget the eternal your God, and walk after other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. So it's either or. It's either do or die. We have no choice. Well, we have a choice. We do or we die. It's, 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 it's that simple. As the nations which the eternal destroys before your face... So shall you perish, because you would not be obedient unto the voice of the Eternal, your God. Boy, I see why he wants this read every seven years. This is important. This is a message we need right now. Chapter 9. Hear, O Israel, you are to pass over Jordan this day to go and to possess nations greater and mightier than yourself, cities great and fenced up to heaven. So walls so high that... They look indomitable, totally defendable. A people great and tall, the children of the Anakims, whom you know not and of whom you have heard say, who can stand before the children of Anak? Giants. Easily twice as tall as an Israelite. Understand, therefore, this day that the eternal your God is he which goes over before you. As a consuming fire, he shall destroy them, and he shall bring them down before your face. So shall you drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Eternal has said to you. Most of you ladies, if you have a husband who's five, six inches taller than you, seven, eight inches maybe, taller than you, stronger than you, you really wouldn't want to go up against him in a fist fight or a wrestling match, would you? He's just clearly bigger and stronger. Now, if you're armed with the right weapons, you might be willing to go there, but uh, generally, just from a physical standpoint, you wouldn't want to go there. You're going to get hurt. Now, what if you had a man who was double your height, whose arms were far more than twice as long as yours? who could carry big spears and big swords. And while you're out there trying to reach to get to him, he stands back and just whips your head off easily. No problem. You're trying to reach his knees, and he's just kind of leaning over and saying, that's what they were up against. God said, I'll be a devouring fire before you. I'll take care of it. He tells us the same thing in Zechariah 2. And in Isaiah 4, I guess it is. 4 to 6.
Verse 4, Speak not you in your heart, after that the Eternal your God has cast them out from before you, saying, For my righteousness the Eternal has brought me in to possess this land, but for the wickedness of these nations the Eternal does drive them out from before you. Not for righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart do you go to possess their land, but for the wickedness of these nations the Eternal your God does drive them out, from before you, and that he may perform the word which the Eternal swore to the fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he says, when everything is going good, you're going to want to get self-righteous and say, we did this. We're self-made men. We're a self-made nation. You'll take the credit. You'll rise up in pride. You'll think, I've made America, I've made Texas, I've made whatever. So wonderful. No, God gave us a land with all the good stuff already in it. And he has fought wars for us at Normandy and other places that we would have lost otherwise. With weather and various means, he has preserved us. But we have turned so far from God as a nation, he's not going to do that anymore. He's going to allow us to be destroyed. And he said so. So it's not for our righteousness. Why do we understand what we understand? I think I spoke of that yesterday. He brings not the mighty and the noble, but the weak and the base to show that he is God. And no matter how well we do, how much we change, he is doing this primarily because he promised it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he will not renege on his promise. So it isn't for our righteousness. It was for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's righteousness. But he also said, if Israel didn't obey him, that land, that blessing, would be taken away. And one more captivity, and that's where we are. Because this nation has not one whit obeyed God. We can still have those promises. We will obey now. This is our chance to escape what is about to come. Understand, therefore, verse 6, that the eternal your God gives you not this good land to possess it for your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. You won't bow your head to God's way. We just won't. Now somebody said, well, we're trying to do better with our diet. We have a nation that is plagued with cancer, heart disease, and diabetes. And yet we keep eating the foods that produce cancer, heart disease, and diabetes. And we're stiff-necked and stubborn about it and have our habits, and we will continue to eat junk and then expect God to heal us. Just one quick example. There are many others. When do we change and take care of our body, which is the temple of the Spirit of God, by changing our awful habits?
It doesn't do any good for me to preach about it, or very little. There are one or two or three that might respond, but the rest have to have their ice cream and their white flour and their white sugar and their preservatives and their uh, what am I trying to say? Artificial sweeteners that will not digest. They go into your bowel and ferment. They're poison. God does not want us putting poison in our bodies. How stiff-necked, stubborn, and rebellious are we? And they would wonder, well, why doesn't God heal me? Why isn't God giving us miracles? Well, we're not doing anything He said to take care of our bodies. So why would we expect Him to bless us? Instead, we should be expecting chastening, trials, trouble, and tribulation until we finally bow our stiff, stubborn, stiff-necked, intractable nature and do the best we can to take care of our bodies in a polluted world. I'm about done talking about it. I haven't much lately. It's up to you. But Deuteronomy is written for a purpose. Verse 7, Remember and forget not how you provoked the eternal your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you did depart out of the land of Mitzrayim until he came, till you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the eternal. Forty years they murmured and griped and complained. We still do. It's been over 27 years now almost since Herbert Armstrong died. We have been in confusion and frustration, and we still gripe and complain and mutter and murmur. And won't do, physically or spiritually, the things that God asks us to do. He just lays it out here, brethren, over and over and over again. When will we pay heed? Our lives depend upon it. Physically in this life and eternally. Now, I've quit preaching and gone to meddling again because I'm telling you what you ought to eat or what you shouldn't eat. Sorry. It's not me, it's God. He says we are to take very good care of the temple of His Spirit, our bodies. And it is the physical thing that he judges our spiritual attitudes about. And yet we have trouble changing habits along those lines and doing what we ought to do. And we insist upon complaining about each other and murmuring and griping and about our leadership and whatever. And God says, I'm going to judge you based on how you do those things with physical human beings. That's what I will do. You show mercy and forgiveness, I will show mercy and forgiveness. If you backbite and are negative and putting people down, that's what's going to happen to you, and it is an eternal judgment.
Oh, that there were such an heart in them, he says of us. All the way, for forty years, you've been rebellious against the Eternal. Also in Sinai or Horeb, you provoked the Eternal to wrath, so that the Eternal was angry with you to have destroyed you. That golden calf and what they were doing there, as Moses was on the mountain, was abominable. Didn't matter. Lightning, thunder off the mountain. They got used to that in a day or two. Built a golden calf. Aaron said it just sort of appeared. Yeah, sure. Not my fault. It just... There it was. <clears throat> Not your fault. Not my fault. Here we are. Verse 10, And the Eternal delivered to me two tables of stone, written with the very finger of God. And on them was written according to all the words which the Eternal spoke with you in the mount out of the midst of this fire in the day of the assembly. So they heard Almighty God recite the Ten Commandments in a voice of thunder. Went back to their idolatry as if nothing had been said. I guess I shouldn't complain that you or I tend not to listen to what I say here. And it's just Daryl's opinion, or he's on that again, or whatever, however way we want to respond. It's God's words. And when God Almighty Himself said it, they gave it no heed. You go talk to him. we got a calf to make. And then God wrote it down with his own finger. And it came to pass at the end of forty days and forty nights that the Eternal gave me the two tables of stone, even the tables of the covenant. And the Eternal said to me, Arise, get you down quickly from here, for your people which you brought forth... Uh, out of Mitzrayim have corrupted themselves, they are quickly turned aside out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten image. What, what chance did Peter, James, and Paul have preaching the Word of God that they had received from Christ? The church fell away anyway. What chance did Herbert Armstrong have of urging us on. This is the gun lap. Hurry. Get ready. Repent. Change. Grow. So God can bless you. And we ignored him. And God had to spew us out of his mouth. Oh, that there were such an heart in us to obey God instead of our physical human desires. And I'm not dressing you down, I'm dressing me down. But what chance do I have, brethren? If God Almighty, speaking to them directly, didn't do any good, Christ coming here and writing the words down, and that did very little good, James, Peter, and Paul preached it till they couldn't anymore, 
and it fell away. What chance do I have to preach these things and have a positive response? I'm not James, and I'm not Peter, and I'm not John, and I'm not Herbert Armstrong. I'm weak and base just like you are. But we do have God. And He will try us and test us and chasten us, and we will respond, or He will raise up stones. That's where we are. This is it. This is the last chance. Now, let's not be utterly discouraged then, because out of the Old Testament, God has numbered a certain amount of people who will be in the first resurrection, Hebrews 11, other places. Many New Testament Christians Paul spoke of as the first fruits, and many qualified during that era of the church despite the fact that the majority fell away. Here in the end time, that number of 144,000 has to be filled out. And there are many who have died in the faith, even in this era from 1927 on, who will be in that first resurrection. And some of us will be there as well. Most of the church will not hear even the two witnesses, 90% will deny even them. But 10% will be faithful. And we can be some of them. So we do not need to be discouraged and let down. God's dressing us down here. Yes, He is. On every aspect of life. Food just came to mind suddenly. But there are many, many other aspects of life where we need to take care of the temple of our body and the temple of our mind. And I don't want to go into hours of harangue about that. Uh, we've got Deuteronomy to cover. But let's understand, this is here and now, and we are responsible to a great degree by how we respond and whether God finally says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into glory. He wants us there. He's promised. He says, it is my good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's not something he's kind of holding back and begrudging. It's my good pleasure. I want to do this so badly. Oh, that there were a heart in them, that they would obey my voice. Choose, therefore, life. That's his attitude. Ours needs to be positive, too. Get rid of negativity. We don't have time for it. Let's see, where was I here? Let's pick it up again in... Uh, Verse 13, Furthermore, the Eternal spoke to me, saying, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Let me alone, that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So God had told Moses, I've had it with them. I'm just going to wipe out every last one of them, 
and I'll start over with you because you have obeyed me. Despite the situation at the rock. So I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire, and the two tables of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the eternal your God, and had made you a molten calf. You had turned aside quickly out of the way which the eternal had commanded you. And I took the two tables and cast them out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. They had despised God and his rules so badly that Moses just said, you don't deserve these. You have broken these. I might as well break them. And did. And I fell down before the Eternal as at the first forty days and forty nights. I did neither eat bread nor drink water because of all your sins which you sinned in doing wickedly in the sight of the Eternal to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure wherewith the Eternal was angry against you to destroy you. God had just told Moses, they've sinned and I am going to wipe them all out. And Moses walked down out of the clouds and suddenly understood why. And it troubled him so deeply, he started another 40-day fast. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure wherewith the Eternal was angry against you to destroy you, but the Eternal hearkened to me at that time also. And the Eternal was very angry with Aaron to have destroyed him. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. And I took your sin, the calf which you had made, and burned it with fire and stamped it and ground it very small, even till it was as small as dust. That had been their earrings and their rings and all of their gold and silver jewelry. And I cast the dust thereof into the brook that descended out of the mountain. If you can find that brook up here somewhere, take your gold pan. Lots of gold and silver dumped in there. May not still be there. And at Tabera, and at Massa, and at Kibroth, Hatavah, you provoke the Hatavah, I guess it is, you provoke the Eternal to wrath. Likewise, when the Eternal sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and possess the land which I have given you, then you rebelled against the command of the Eternal, your, your, your God, and you believed him not, nor hearkened to his voice. You have been rebellious against the Eternal from the day that I knew you. He's really letting them have it, isn't he? He just goes on and on here. Thus I fell down before the Eternal forty days and forty nights, as I fell down at the beginning at the first time, because the Eternal had said he would destroy you. I prayed therefore to the Eternal and said, O Lord God, destroy not your people and your inheritance which you have redeemed through your greatness which you have brought forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look not to the stubbornness of this people, nor to their wickedness, nor to their sin. He couldn't deny it. It was there. He couldn't say, these people have some redeeming things. Look at that. All he could do was plead Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The only thing he could go back to that was righteous and say, for their sake, you said they'd be as the sand of the sea and the stars of the heaven and so on. Save this people. He was, he was desperate. 
He was looking for a way to get God not to destroy every man, woman, and child on the spot. And that's all he could come up with. Verse 28, Lest the land whence you brought us out say, Because the Eternal was not able to bring them into the land which he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to slay them in the wilderness. Yet they are your people and your inheritance, which you brought out by the mighty power and by the stretched out arm. Don't forget how you delivered them, Father, because of the sin that is there. What are we going to do? Will we respond? You know, we moved out of our homes, out of our cities, away from our relatives. We came out into this essentially wilderness land, wilderness land, didn't we? Now, if we do not respond to Almighty God and do what He wants done, we will perish along with the rest of the nation. And those who do survive in the church, because God will save some somewhere, are going to say, those people thought God was with them, and they moved out in that wilderness, and now they're all dead. <clears throat> I don't want that to happen to us. I want us to respond to Almighty God and serve Him in every possible way we can so that He will save us and use us to prove to the world that He is the King all-glorious, the God of glory. That's what I want of you and me. And that's what God wants of you and me. If He didn't think this could be done, He would not have called us here. How can we possibly give up on God? How can we possibly give up on the things He has shown us and the opportunity He has promised us? We say we love God. Is it only words? Are we willing to change our lives to live by every word of God? as we're told three times in the Bible, direct quotes of each other? Or do we hold back this and hold back that? Well, this isn't so important. It's my heart. Well, if your heart was right, you'd change your physical habits too. The heart and the head are not yet right if we will not make changes that we need to make to get in line with God's way. It's not just the physical. Well, let's concentrate on the spiritual. You cannot separate the physical and the spiritual. It cannot be done. Because how we live physically re reflects our spiritual status. And we either respond to God with everything in our power to take care of our minds and bodies, or we do not. And he judges the heart based on those things. And we can pray to God all we want, but if we treat our brethren with disrespect and negativity and stab them in the back and talk behind their back, 
we will not be in the kingdom of God. Won't be there. It is that serious. But we'll do it again before the day or the week is over, won't we? Haven't stopped yet, have we? Gotten a little better about it? I think so. Hope so. Then I forget where I am. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in verse 27. And look not to the stubbornness of this people, nor to their wickedness, nor to their sin. Lest the land which you brought us out say... Oh, we already read that. Let's go to chapter 10, move on down. At that time the Eternal said to me, Hew you two tables of stone like to the first, come up to me into the mountain and make you an ark of wood. And I will write on the tables the words that were in the first tables, which you broke, and you shall put them in this ark. And I made an ark of shittim wood and hewed two tables of stone like unto the first, and went up into the mountain, having the two tables in my hand. This time God requested a protective box around them and made Moses do the hewing, since he's the one that threw them on the ground. And he wrote on the tables, according to the first writing, the Ten Commandments, which the Eternal spoke to you in the mount out of the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly, and the Eternal gave them to me. And I turned myself and came down from the mount and put the tables in the ark which I had made, and there they be, as the Eternal commanded me. And the children of Israel took their journey from Beeroth of the children of Jabbokan to Moserah, there Aaron died, and there he was buried, and Eliezer, his son, ministered in the priest's office in his stead. From thence they journeyed to Gadoga, and from Gadoga to Jotbath, a land of rivers of waters. Rivers of, land of rivers of waters? Might have been somewhere around here. It wasn't over there. There's no rivers of waters in Israel, and there aren't any around anywhere else over there either. The Tigris and Euphrates are a long way away. There's very, very little water in the Middle East, especially, and particularly in Israel. At that time, the Eternal separated the tribe of Levi to bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Eternal, to stand before the Eternal, to minister to him, and to bless in his name to this day. Wherefore, Levi has no partner inheritance with his brethren... The eternal is his inheritance, according as the eternal your God promised him. And I stayed in the mountain, according to the first time, forty days and forty nights, and the eternal hearkened to me at that time also, and the eternal would not destroy you. And the eternal said to me, Arise, take your journey before the people, that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give to them. In spite of the utter wickedness, God said, I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, thanks for the... Reminder, Moses, go ahead and lead them over there. And now, Israel, what does the eternal your God require of you? Just what does God require of us? But to fear the eternal your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, 
and to serve the eternal your God with all your heart and with all your soul, to keep the commandments of the eternal and the statutes which I command you this day for your good. That could have been taken out of the New Testament as easily as the Old, could it not? I can think of many, many places that say essentially those thoughts in the New Testament. Moses knew. He understood spirituality. He understood the relationship that needed to be between man and God, or God and man. Verse 14, Behold, the heaven and the, the, heaven, and the heaven of heavens is eternal's your God, the earth also, with all that therein is. Only the eternal has a delight in your fathers to love them. And he chose their seed after them, even you, above all people, as it is this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. So even in that day, it wasn't a circumcision of the flesh, but of the heart that counted. Is it any wonder, Paul said, physical circumcision is nothing, means nothing? It's all the heart. That's as low as it gets, the heart. That's where it counts. For the eternal your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regards not persons nor takes reward. We will be judged upon our actions, our fruits. He will not show any special privilege to anyone. He does execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow and loves the stranger in giving him food and raiment. That's particularly mentioned many, many times in the Bible. Let's take care of the widow and the orphan and the stranger, those who are in need. But then it says if they don't work, they shouldn't eat either. There's a balance in there between being stupid and providing what is needed when it is needed, but you don't teach, you don't give people fish interminably. You teach them to fish so they can feed themselves. That's the way God's plan works. But those who are less fortunate in society, who have lost a mate, or children who've lost a parent, or people who are penniless because of the circumstance, whatever it may be, when they come to you as strangers, you are to take care of them. And much of our judgment is based upon that, on whether or not we are willing to do those things. Christ made it very clear in Matthew 25 that that's how he will judge us. <clears throat> Remember that we were strangers in the land. Verse 20, You shall fear the eternal your God, him shall you serve, and to him shall you cleave and swear by his name. He is your praise, and He is your God that has done for you these great and terrible things which your eyes have seen. The fathers went down into Egypt with three score and ten people, seventy souls. And now the eternal your God has made you as the stars of heaven for multitude. They had increased and increased and increased to at least three, three and a half, four million when they came out of Egypt. And after forty years of breeding in the desert... 
even though three and a half million maybe had died, they had probably produced several of themselves through childbirth during that time. So there were still millions to go in. Chapter 11 is fairly long. I've spoken for a little over an hour, so I think I'm going to stop there at the end of verse 10, and we'll pick it up again tomorrow.